0: Middle school is hard, uh, and I think if most of us were honest, we would look back on those days and go, what was I thinking? Middle school is ridiculous, and the fact that, and as been someone who has been in youth ministry for most of my life, um, the middle school concept is one that just baffles me. It's taking the most insecure people, throwing them into a box together, and then those insecure people telling other insecure people how not to be insecure, I mean, it's basically middle school. can be high school now, too, and most of the world. So if we're honest, we're just giant middle school versions of ourselves, really. Because middle school is all about looking around and going, who will I be like? Who will like me? What can I do that won't draw enough attention to me, but some attention to me? Middle school and Pergamum. Middle school and Israel. Think of middle school, you. Understand that you are not as cool as you think you are in middle school, okay? Because you're looking around going, who can I be like? Who can I be accepted by? Who will acknowledge me? Who will point me out? Who will bring me into their group? That's middle school. And it is hard because you really don't break a lot of the patterns you established in middle school as adults, right? Like why do we chase work, approval, acknowledgement, being satisfied, recognition? Why do we chase money? Why did we go out and buy a lottery ticket for the $1.6 billion winning? Did anyone in here win that? I'd be expecting a, 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 a type check at some point, right? Shit? no, no, okay, don't, Why do we chase education? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Why do we chase athletic achievement? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Why do we chase sexual relationships? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Why do we chase dating relationships? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Why do we chase thrill rides? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Why do we chase internet acknowledgement and internet likes? Approval, acknowledgement, satisfaction. Are you seeing how we're not much different from middle schoolers? We are all giant. Middle schoolers. Pergamum going through the awkward middle school phase. What if I told you from the very beginning of human existence that God has attempted to reveal to us that apart from him, apart from him, anything that we chase to make us whole will not make us happy. And anything that we chase to make us happy will not make us happy us whole what if i told you that god's big reveal to the world through the old testament and the new is that satisfaction acceptance acknowledgement is impossible apart from knowing it from the lord himself I mean, I think there's probably some of you in here going, well, if you try chasing money a little differently, like that's what we do, right? We all think that if I could just get that thing, it would be different for me, for me. Like those of you that, that were like chasing the lottery this week, you're like, if I won it, I'd give so much of it away, Lord. It's like they say, right? Well, if I won it, I would take care of tons of people, Lord. See, Lord, I would. You know, it's it's what we do. We think somehow that these things will satisfy us, will find us the acceptance and the acknowledgement because, oh, we're different than the rest of human history. Right? Pergamum, awkward middle school phase. As we've been in Revelation for the past several weeks, the one thing that we have seen of all of these churches is that Christ had to address them specifically. First week when we looked at Ephesus, he said, I'm the one who holds the lampstands. And, and here's the deal. You need to return to your first love. I hold the church. So if you've forgotten about me and you've forgotten about loving others, then, then why are you even calling yourself a church? And then he, he talks about to Smyrna and he says, hey, I'm the one who died and rose again. This was a church that was in some very intense suffering. And, and what is the worst end in suffering for most people? They think, well, it's death. If I die, then that's it. That's a terrible story. And Jesus is saying, look, I suffered and I died, but I rose. You are getting to share in my suffering and my death, but you will also share in the resurrection. His tone is a little different this week almost like knock knock who's there sword not a very good knock knock joke (laughs) so let's read revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 12 write this letter to the angel of the church in pergamum this is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword i know that you live in the city where satan has his throne yet you have remained loyal to me You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we're here this morning not to stroke our own egos or our own pride or our own way of thinking, but we're here to hear from you. And Lord, if we do not, then we waste our time. So Holy Spirit, would you please come? Would you speak to our hearts? Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts to hear your words this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen. Pergamum may have faced a very dangerous world, but Pergamum was in danger not because of the world, but because of the Lord for not separating themselves from the ways of the world. I want you to hear me clearly that they are not being asked to separate themselves from the world. That's impossible. Paul said that. You come to faith, you can't take yourself out of society. Many people have tried, but that is not what the church was called to do. The church is called to be in the center of the places where people do not believe. So Jesus is not saying, you guys didn't separate and get out of Dodge. He's saying the church has never been called to accept the ways of the world. And a church that begins to say, oh, we love the way the world thinks about this. We love the way the world operates about this. We love the philosophies that teach this. That is where Jesus is saying, there's blurred lines happening and they cannot. This is not easy for us to hear. The church has always, always, always been called not to separate herself from the world, but specifically from the ways of the world. This is about compromise. This is about those things that we have begun to simply tolerate, and then we begin to accept, and then we begin to boast. It happens all the time, and it's a dangerous road for the church to walk. John introduces us to Jesus as the one from whose mouth came a double edged sword. In, John, in Revelation chapter one, Jesus shows up behind John and John's like, whoa, I don't even recognize this Jesus. We all love baby Jesus. We all love Jesus in the manger, baby Jesus. We, you know, we don't want the Jesus returning victorious Jesus. We want, we want the Jesus meek and mild who's walking around, hugging people, holding hands. We don't want sword from mouth Jesus. We understand baby Jesus. But sword from mouth Jesus, that Jesus freaks us out. So we refuse to look at sword from mouth Jesus and we all want to talk about baby Jesus. Like that's how it works, right? But in Revelation 19, listen to how he is described again. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. What is the sword? As Christ's followers understand that sword, it is God's word. And in the Old Testament, the sword is often represented as judgment or that judgment was coming or that judgment had come. And the Old Testament always made clear that at God's word, not man's word, but at God's word, nations would rise and fall. Ultimately, God's word is final. And in an Old Testament prediction about Jesus, these words were written about Jesus six to 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. But listen to this description of the Messiah, the one who was promised to come and be a rescuer. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. So ain't nobody got to explain anything to him. It's not going to be a surprise to him. Nothing is gonna catch him off guard. No rumors will reach to him. We won't have to go, but Jesus, but Jesus, that's not true, that's not, that, that's not. We will not have to worry about those things for he is a just judge. In verse four, he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. Don't we long for that? Like When you look around, don't you rage a little bit? Like if you're not, there might be something wrong with you. But this is why Christ followers are called to stand up for those who are exploited. This is why we're called to be a mouthpiece for those who don't have a voice. Because our God cares about those who don't have a voice and who are being abused and exploited. Jesus cares about this. And isn't it good to know that someday all of that hidden stuff that we don't know anything about, it'll be settled. It'll be revealed. We'll know what is true and we'll know what is a lie. Today, it's so tough, right? And it's more frustrating than anything. But to know that the one who was promised, he will give justice to the poor, make fair decisions for the exploited, Listen to this. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And I think we can rightly say that since Jesus has spoken, the world has not stopped shaking. The world has continued to wrestle against, rage against. And the church has been sustained by this earth-shaking word. Nothing. In all creation is hidden from God. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Jesus's word is trustworthy and true. Christ followers love to say those things. But may I also tell you that his word is not only trustworthy and true, but it is authoritative. It is our final word. It is our authority. And we don't like that necessarily. We like to kind of reminisce on the chicken soup for the soul concepts of he is trustworthy. He is true, but he's authoritative. Oh, don't gun it. I'd really just like a little Jesus light for my day. But then when he starts speaking and I start raging against what it is that he says, at the end of the day, his word has authority over our lives. Well, we have the promise that Jesus did not come into the world the first time to judge the world. We have that promise. We have the Gospels. We have the announcement that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world. He came into the world to save the world. But yet, when we read the Gospels, and I believe this is part of the reason we avoid reading the Scripture, is because what happens when we read Hebrews chapter 4? For the Word of God is alive and powerful, It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Heesh. Nothing in all creation is hidden from him. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. These words, the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword, as Miss Sue alluded to, not only could cut, but in the right hands it can also cure. Not only does the double-edged sword hurt, but in the right hands, the sharp edge can also heal. To some, the sword may, sit, may feel like evil, but to others, to those who know that the word of God has authority and is healing and brings hope and brings rest, it's not death, it's life. Why did Jesus bring this word of correction? Because he loves his bride. And I know some of you don't like the idea of correction. You don't like the idea of having anyone tell you that what you're doing is life-taking. But you need to thank God that there would be anyone in your life who would say, just so you know where you're headed is dangerous ground. We need to break free from the idea in this world that to confront someone, specifically Christ followers, specifically in the church, that it is our role and our joy in the gospel to throw ourselves in front of people who will throw their lives away. Your small group of people should be that line of defense against you wasting your life. You should have to jump over the bodies of those surrounding you to get to that thing that's going to kill you. I don't know that we see small group community in this way anymore. We are looking for people to affirm us in all of our decisions, regardless of whether or not they honor God. We are looking for people to tell us, hey, if it makes you happy. That's really what we want to hear. The question is, is it what we need to hear? And according to Jesus's words, correction comes because of love, not in opposition to it. Jesus's words are final. But before Jesus calls the church to repent, I need you to hear that he commends them because he knows just how hard it is to live where they live. Listen to the words again, verse 13. Jesus is speaking. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Just as Jesus knew how hard it was for Christ followers to live there. He knows how hard it is for you to live where you live. I don't know where you live in the context of your individual home living situation, but I know Jesus does. I know that it's been hard for you in your home situation, that Jesus knows that you have lived there, and I know that we live in Asheville. Like, we live in Asheville. Everybody talks about, ooh, you live in Asheville. I'm like, yeah, I live in Asheville. I love that place. What do you mean, ooh, you live in Asheville? I mean, we, you go three miles outside the city, and they're like, oh, you live in Asheville. And I'm like, what do you mean you live in Asheville? You live in Asheville. It's hard. But the Lord opens his words with them saying, I know how hard it is where you live. I know it's difficult. I know the place that you live and it is Satan's throne. We have never had Asheville called that, okay? We may boast in being the cesspool of sin but that's the first half of understanding the gospel if we're right, right? Like I have to acknowledge I'm a sinner. Yes, I get it. I live in a cesspool of sin. I included, okay? But the gospel is there is a rescuer. Yeah, it's hard to live here. Can we just all say that? But can we also say that Jesus knows that it's hard to live here? It was hard to live where he lived. It is hard where Pergamum is. And along with wealth and education and being a capital city, Pergamum was very spiritual like super spiritual, like hyper spiritual. Have you guys ever, if you've ever been overseas, have you gone to the markets in the big cities of those overseas cities? Uh, every time I go to a market in an overseas city, this is my experience. I will walk not trying to make eye contact with any of the people that are selling anything. Because you know that if you make eye contact with them, they're like, ah, come, 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 come into my, come into my, my storefront. Come, 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 come. That's, I, every time, every time. And then I'm like, oh man, I made eye contact with them, dang it. And then you get to the front and there's like the tables and they're like, what do you want? What do you see? What do you, I'll make you a great deal on it. And then I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, come, 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 come. And then they take you behind the table and then you go back further into the back of their store. And you're like way in and it's too deep. You're, get, you're not getting out of there without buying something. <sighs> Pergamum. Essentially, could give people what they were looking for, but it would also tell them about things they didn't even know they needed yet. So you would go and visit Pergamum. And so maybe you had an impossible situation that you were facing. You went to the temple of Zeus, the god of gods. And this is an impossible situation. So you went and made a sacrifice or paid a price at the altar of Zeus. Were you seeking pleasure? You went to Dionysus' temple, god of wine and revelry. And it was a known understanding that in that temple people could get worked into such a frenzy of sexual immorality and pleasure-seeking that their, their, their pagan ceremonies often would end in human sacrifice. There is no end to how wicked human beings can actually be when given all of their desires. Do you need a good crop? Then you go to Demeter's temple. He could put food on your table. Did you need military wisdom? You went to Athena's temple. Did you need healing? This was a very famous temple in the city of Pergamum. You went to the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing, And what you would do is the priest would get you in this trance and you would lay down on this floor in this dark room and with a bunch of other bodies in the room who were all seeking the same thing you were and they would release these non-venomous snakes into the room. And as you laid there, if one of the non-venomous snakes just happened to crawl over your body, you took it as a sign that now you were healed. Asclepius meant savior to so many of these people the image was a serpent. Along with the worship of the gods, there was the worship of Rome. And they built a temple to Trajan. And one day every year, people were to come to that temple, offer a pinch of spice on the altar, and declare that Caesar is Lord. Nationalism ruled. They were a city that was obsessed with Caesar. And looking at this city... You can see how hard it would have been to be a Christian. And Jesus is saying. I see. I see where you are. I know how hard it is to be a follower of mine in that City. In fact, many of the people who were in this city probably heard the gospel as they were outside of the city. And then you have to make the trek back into the city. And then you have to make a stand in that city. And then you have to think about all the relationships and the people you know in that city. That now that you have heard the gospel and that you have been made right with God and you no longer need temple worship and you no longer can bow to Caesar, can you tell me you'd go back into that city in full confidence? No. You'd be afraid just like many of them were. But Jesus doesn't just say, I know your situation. He actually says, I know that you have stood your ground. I know that you haven't left. I know that you have not given up on the good news. I know that you have not handed over the gospel and traded it. I know that you're staying faithful to it. Imagine having to stand in the lines of all the other people who are going about affirming Caesar as Lord And you not being able to. Imagine standing there. And as it comes to you. Not only do you say. Zeus is not the king. Caesar is not the Lord. You say Jesus is Lord. That's 202. On the middle school popularity chart right there. In fact. John Allen. In his article called The Global War on Christians. He says that 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed against Christians. Let me show you what that looks like. In the next slide. Societal discrimination. Institutional discrimination. Employment discrimination. Legal discrimination, violence against individual Christians, suppression against Christian missions, suppression of conversion to Christianity, forced conversion from Christianity, suppression of corporate worship, and entire communities oppressed because of the name of Jesus. And lastly, 90% of all people killed on the basis of religious beliefs in the world today. We are not talking about ancient society. Our Christians. In the ESV, the words of Revelation 2.13 are translated this way. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. More than likely, Antipas was killed for refusing some kind of Caesar worship. Church tradition says that he may have been put in this golden bowl and then boiled over a burning altar. And Jesus says, you saw this man die and you did not forfeit the gospel. I see you. I know you where you're at and I know where you're walking there is no other name by which we are saved there is no other name that we promote there is no other savior and Pergamum was holding fast to that one name but they were also known as a people who had not denied the faith they were a people who believed the scriptures that were given to them revealed God not the temples those weren't the places you went if you wanted to know God. You heard the scripture. They revealed what God had done, not through the temples, but through the written word, through the apostles' testimony. And you also understood how you were to live, not based on experience, but what was true. This ultimately completely summed up in the person of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, announcing to the world, you don't have to go looking for a savior anymore because the savior has come to find you. That's where the church stood. That's what the church stood on, and it's what you and I are called to stand on today. It is through Christ that the church, the people of God have found acceptance. We have found acknowledgement and we have been satisfied not by the temples, not by frenzies. We're not trying to get God to pay attention to us. He has shown us his full attention in sending his son so that we might have life. And in the same way, Highland, we are to be a people who hold fast to Christ We are marked by a deep level of satisfaction because we have been accepted and acknowledged by God. Our hearts were made for that acceptance and that acknowledgement. And we don't look for any other saviors because the Savior has come to find us. That is what we hold fast to. There was a complaint In the midst of Jesus seeing their situation, hear these words. Verse 14, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Balaam's story is a quick and crazy one. Essentially, he was hired as a guy who would do whatever for the highest paying bidder. And Balak was the commander of the Moabite army and Israel was at their door. And he hired Balaam as a, as a guy who could speak blessings and cursings. He said, I want you to come. I want you to stand at this mountaintop and I want you to curse Israel. Well, he gets up there and essentially the Lord takes over Balaam's mouth and he speaks a blessing over Israel. And Balak's like, dude, you just spoke a blessing over them. I said, curse them. It's like, well, I can't say anything the Lord wants me to say, and I won't say anything you won't want me to say. So he said a blessing over them. Let's try it again. I go stand at another mountaintop. He goes to speak a cursing over Israel. He ends up speaking another blessing over Israel. And Balak's like, dude, seriously? You're over two. He says, well, let's try it again. Go stand. I mean, you can see where this is going three times. To curse Israel Instead the Lord says Nope you're going to speak A blessing over Israel And Balak's like This is it You're done You're fired You're fired But what ended up happening Was the Moabite women Began to catch the attention Of the Israelite men And as the Israelite men Pursued these Moabite women They also took on Their idol worship They took on their Sexual ethic And they began to be Compromised as a people. So when we read this, Jesus is saying you are allowing lines to be blurred that were not meant to be blurred. And to be quite honest, there is no greater danger to the church out there than there is from the inside. Do any of you remember the first plot of the Avengers movie, the first Avengers movie? Of course you don't. You'll have lives. I do not. Um, Loki... <laughs> was the enemy at the time and he came up with a scheme essentially to destroy the avengers and it was not from the outside in in fact he worked his way inside and his goal was to destroy the avengers from the inside if he could get them plotting and turning against each other he knew that if i can get them manipulated and twist the way they see and the way they think then i can destroy them And it wouldn't be from this outside attack, but it was from the inside. And so you saw all of this destruction happening because inside out, not outside in. They were too strong on the outside. We don't have much when it comes to understanding the Nicolaitans, but we do have some words regarding them from the early church fathers. These are words that were written by the guys who saw the church, who walked with the church in the early centuries they live lives of unrestrained indulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. The church at Pergamum had people living among them that lived lives identical to the culture around them. And they actually allowed them to lead their churches. They were actually allowing them to teach their ways to the church so it wasn't just like people were coming and hearing the good news and being a part of the church these people who had false views on what it meant to follow Jesus know who God was know who we were as the people of God they were be given they were being given platforms to teach and instruct the bride of Christ you and I we can't expect the culture to understand what we have been rescued from I cannot expect someone who does not know the gospel to take on the same sexual ethic that I might have. As broken as I have been before and as broken as I still am today, I understand what the Lord has rescued me out of. Therefore, I go, Lord, your word is good. Lord, your word is final. And God, there are times I don't understand it because I have been in so many awkward conversations with so many people and I have walked away pitied by those people for my views we can't expect the culture to want us to remain steadfast in the scripture but as his bride we must understand just how deadly compromising to accommodate people really is in our own lives And when I say compromise, this is what I mean. It's like the man, the young man who, you know, let's take a high school student who says, you know what? I'm in a good church and I'll never date a girl who drinks, cusses, smokes, or chews. Right? Like he says that. But if we're all honest, we know that said dude, he's never gonna get a girl who's like that anyways. Like, he doesn't have it in him. The wherewithal, like He's just that good guy. He's never gonna have a girl who approaches him that's like, that. oh, wait, until his junior year when a girl who does drink, cuss, smoke, or chew kinda sees him, right? And like, the dude's like, I'll never, wait, maybe I will. Now that she sees me, and right, It's compromise, right? But that's what experience does to us. We let our experiences dictate what we will believe, right? It's just how we work. And what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot let experience lead. You and I have very different experiences, but really we don't. We have good times. We have bad times. We suffer deeply and we, re- we, we rejoice greatly, Some people's lives are marked by suffering. Some people's lives are marked by rejoicing. But experience isn't our teacher. Truth is. And this is where Jesus comes in and says, you are letting experience change who you are and what's going on. But listen to how Jesus addresses the situation. He says, repent of your sin or I will come to you And fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus tells the church to repent of your sin. It is good for the church to hear from Jesus. Change how you think about your current culture. Change how you think about your actions. And even greater, change how you think about God. Like it's essentially an authority of God's word that we're struggling with. And he's saying repent of that turn from that repentance is essentially a change of mind that leads to a change of direction Jesus first addresses the heart and mind and our lives and our actions begin to follow suit and it is because he loves us that he would tell us this but notice that there is a word change can you throw that scripture back up on the screen again repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against what's that word what's that word them. There's a change in the word. If the church does not confront this worldliness, Jesus says he will come and fight against them. Those who are parading around as the church. But they are not. If the church doesn't choose to deal with the socially accepted blurred lines, God will. If the church doesn't choose to deal with the Let's all just go along to get along. God will deal with it. And if the church doesn't deal with the worldliness within it, God will. This is a strong warning to those who are playing around. Please hear me that Jesus will never treat his bride harshly. Ever. He will never come to his bride harshly and abuse or bring harsh words, but he will come to those who are playing around and he will bring his word and his word will be final. And on the other side of that coin, what kind of good husband, as Jesus is to the bride, would not step in when his wife is being abused or harmed by other people? You better believe that Jesus will come and step harshly to those who aim to deceive and destroy his bride. There is a key word change from he will come to you and fight against them. He is is making a very clear break saying there are those who are the church and then there are those who are playing church. And to be willing to compromise and to be willing to teach false doctrine and false ideas is deadly to his bride. He will step in. He will not allow it to continue. Jesus says, I know what you are experiencing. Remember what is true. And then he reminds her of her victory. Verse 17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven and I will give to each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. As we close this morning, I want to leave you with those three images. See, that, that manna that's hidden away in heaven, that's not something we need to go looking for because it's promised to us. But those of you that understand from the Old to the New Testament, manna was essentially how God provided for his people all that she needed when she was in the wilderness. It was God's way of saying, I will nourish you. Don't worry about all those other things. I will provide for you. You don't need to go looking for other things. You don't want to go back to Egypt. I will provide for you. Jesus is reminding the church, I've provided for you. But he doesn't just stop with the manna. He moves to the white stone. And there are a few pictures that Jesus actually could have been referring to in this time period. In this time period, it was pretty common practice that if you were before a court and you were found condemned, there would be a black stone handed you. If you were found acquitted, you would be handed a white stone. There was also the practice of in an athletic competition when somebody won the event, they were handed a white stone. And that white stone represented their entrance into the celebration banquet, celebrating these victories. Jesus is saying, I've given you all the acceptance you need. I have acquitted you. You are found innocent in my eyes. Don't trade that for the world. You, you have been accepted by me. But he doesn't just leave it generic white stone, does he? I love that it's not generic, but that it is a white stone with a new name on it. This is incredibly intimate and personal. It is a powerful promise from the creator of the world that he acknowledges us. It's not only that we know Jesus' name, but that he knows our name. Like, we're not just going, hey, I know Jesus, but Jesus is going, I know that guy. I know his name. You are not just a blob. You have faces and names and stories that I love and I'm a part of and I cannot wait till we sit down in glory and eat at the banquet table. This is how personal the gospel is. It comes oh so close. And there was the uh, the, uh, the last visual image that it could represent in the white stone is both white stone being acceptance and gaining entrance in, but also uniqueness. It was common practice in those times that if you were a dinner guest and you were invited to a banquet, you would actually be given a seat at the table and there would be a white stone sitting at your seat. And underneath that white stone would be a note from the host of the party that was unique to you And it was unlike everybody else's message around that table. Jesus is letting us know you don't want to trade all of this for the ways of the world. You know, it was funny. I was going to try and use a white stone as like an illustration because, you know, you you remember it, you see it, whatever. I did my darndest today to walk around and find a white stone to find that stone that represented acceptance and every stone I found was blemished. Every stone I picked up was tainted and affected and dirty and I couldn't get it clean. And isn't that just like our experience chasing acceptance? But there is one who holds a white stone with your name and only your name on it. Don't trade it for the world. The scriptures have never been about, hey, avoid bad things, and then you'll have life. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. The gospel is because you know Christ, You have life. Now, don't trade it for anything else in the world. Idols, some other sexual ethic, pleasure, or power, those are not for you, Highland. You have been pulled out and rescued from a world that will not accept the things of God. And all we can do to be salt and light is to remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus. That he has rescued us. We have not rescued ourselves. This morning, our invitation time will be very different, a little different. We hope in Christ because even if we did every moral thing right in these days, we would still be lost. Even if we had every moral ethic down to a T, we would still be lost according to Jesus's words. But what we do know is that he has redeemed us out of those things. We have been called out of the world, not because we're trying to preserve ourselves, but because he has preserved us. Where are you this morning? Where is your relationship with Christ today? Have you valued a yes from the world? more than the applause of God, repent of it. It's a gift to the church. It's a gift to actually say, God, thank you for revealing to me that I have sought the applause of man way more than I've sought the applause of you. Thank you for revealing that to me. Turn my heart, warm my heart to your word. That's repentance. It's God changing our hearts and our minds. And so we're just gonna place, this place will be open for that. Your chairs, get on your knees. Do what you need to do to deal with what the Lord is stirring and you don't harden your heart when you hear his voice. Also, maybe you're living in the world because you've never been called out of it. Maybe you are in here today because you have never heard the call of Christ to come out of the world and be his. If I can tell you one thing from this this morning... It is that there is no more when in Rome when we are in Christ. There is no more. Do as the Romans do. It is we do as Jesus does. There is no more when in Rome when you are in Christ. And that's when we move to the tables around the room. I love that we get to take the bread and the juice and be reminded that we are in Christ, that we have the satisfaction, the acceptance and approval of God because of what Jesus has done, not because of my works. So this morning, if you need to deal with the Lord and you need to get on your knees and you need to repent and confess, this place is open, your chair, if you need to get down on your knees, if you just need to say, God, please, thank you, I love you, I'm glad that you let me know these things because you love me. If you wanna know what it means to come out of the world, I'll be standing over here, I'd love to pray with you, I'd love to follow it, I, I, let's go get coffee, whatever it takes to help you understand the power of the gospel, let's start that journey. And then when your heart is prepared, you may go to the corners of the room, take the bread, the juice, and remember that Christ has died, and he is risen. Father, we love you. And I ask in these moments that somehow you would wake, up, wake us up. Remind us of our first love that Jesus, you, you are the one who satisfies. You are the one who we were made to have found our acceptance in. You are the one that we, we want to hear the acknowledgement from. And we are so tempted pursue those false, little, stained, broken stones of acceptance the world might have to offer. Stir our hearts for you.